Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that no matter how many times we read it, no matter how many years we've been walking with you, there's always something new to receive from it. We thank you that it is a book unlike any other book that has ever been published. Because they are not mere words. They are the power of God. Jesus is the embodiment of the Word. Lord, we thank you that your Word is always timeless. It transcends cultures and people groups and and time frames. It speaks to us directly. It cuts us to the very quick. Lord, we thank you for the power of its words, the power to comfort, the power to convict, the power to bring peace and joy. Lord, we thank you for all these things. And ultimately, your word is meant for our good. Your word is meant for our growth. So, Lord, I pray that you would calm each of our hearts, that you would remove all distractions from us, that we may sit at your feet and just hear from you. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. During the last semester of my senior year at Moody Bible Institute, uh, I had enrolled in all the classes that I was required to, to enroll in in order to graduate. But I was still a few credits shy of remaining a full-time student. So I enrolled in a physical education class named Intro to Jogging. Because, you know, one needs an entire semester's worth of classes to learn how to do that. But I thought... You know, I could do that, so off I went to intro to jogging. I thought it would be a few easy credits. I went through the entire semester not really pushing myself because I only needed the credits to graduate until the very last day of the class. And on that last day of the class, the teacher set up a race for all the students enrolled in that class to see who would be the fastest in that class. The only prize was knowing you won. That was it. There was no other prize. Just knowing that you were the one that that won. But I still made up my mind, even after I hadn't really trained for it, I am going to win this race. I'm going to win it. It was something like 20 times around the track in the school's gym. That's what it boiled down to. The whistle was blown. We all took off. And I ran like I've never run before, determined to win this race. For some reason, that's still unknown to me today. I crossed the finish line, winning the race, basking in the glory of my victory, and then immediately threw up all over the track. (laughs) So much for winning it. I was trying to run a race I hadn't actually trained for. And it was a pretty pathetic ending for a race that wasn't even a 5K, much less an entire half marathon or even a full marathon. I determined I'm going to win this race, and I didn't allow myself to develop an endurance for it like a strong and intelligent athlete would, would have done. I didn't actually follow any training program and ended up paying for it later. In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul likens the Christian life to a grueling competition. Christian life was never meant to be easy. So anybody who came here thinking that, you might want to leave now because anything you hear is going to be the opposite of that. The Christian life is a grueling competition, a foot race that requires determination, focus, and a dedication to win. 
Like a weightlifting program or using a personal trainer, Paul outlines the goal to running this race of faith and winning it. This is the goal for any believer, no matter how new you are to biblical faith in Jesus for your salvation, and no matter how long you've been running this race. And I hope by the end of this message we've all gleaned something from this so that we can use in our daily race of faith. So our first point that we come to this morning is the destination, the goal, the target, the aim. Believe it or not, these verses, though often taken as standalone verses, connect back to the context of what Paul has already been talking about. I know between visiting guest-speaking missionaries and a couple of special Sunday messages, it's been about a month since we've been in 1 Corinthians before. If you can remember, if you can reach far back in your mind, Paul is answering questions connected to a controversial topic that's going on in the Corinthian church. You may or may not know, but these New Testament books, a lot of them are letters. Most of them are letters to specific people in specific places wrestling with specific issues. The letter of 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul, the first recorded letter that we have, that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, the church that resided in the, uh, uh, the uh, church of Corinth, the city of Corinth. All these messages covering the topic we've been talking about in more detail are up on our website and podcast platform. But in a nutshell, the Corinthian church was wrestling over whether or not to eat meat that had been knowingly sacrificed to pagan deities. Now, we don't really struggle with that so much these days, but Paul, more so in chapters 8 and 9, the connection is partaking of meat that was sacrificed to idols at pagan temple celebrations. Before I lose you, in the Corinthian church, much like, any, much like any church today, there were some new believers who had come out of that pagan lifestyle. And if they partook in this form of meat consumption, their minds would immediately connect with that pagan aspect of that, and to them, it would have been sin. Their mind would have automatically gone back to that celebration. However, certain more well-to-do church members who could afford meat on a regular basis, which is a whole other world, were saying, our Christian liberty allows us to eat whatever we want because we're not held to the Old Testament law. And so since these deities, these idols represent, don't actually exist, there's no harm in partaking in this public consumption of obviously pagan dedicated meat. Through this, they were causing spiritual harm to their brothers and sisters who were being tempted to include themselves even though it would have been spiritual compromising to their spiritual development. Paul warned those who saw no problem with it, listen guys, the theology behind your view is spot on. No, you're not held to the Old Testament dietary laws anymore. But you're living it out is the problem. It's better to give up the rights you have as a believer in Jesus not being held to the dietary laws of the Jewish law for the sake of brotherly love. It's better for you to give up certain freedoms if it means lifting your so-called spiritually weaker brothers and sisters to higher spiritual growth. In fact, Paul spent the section of verses right before this morning's section describing how he lives in the lifestyle of whatever part of society he's trying to reach with the gospel while still adhering to God's moral laws. This even extended in verse 22 to the so-called weaker brothers and sisters. 
If it were Paul, as he says in chapter 8, verse 13, he would go so far as to even give, giving up any kind of meat of any kind altogether if it meant the spiritual preservation of his weaker brothers and sisters. So, with all of that brief review in connection with this morning's passage, Paul says in verse 23, uh, so if you brought your Bible with you, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you didn't, that's all right. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. It's in the New Testament. It's... it's, it's um, pretty soon into the New Testament. You can look it up in the uh, table of contents or ask a neighbor. We're going to start in verse 23 of chapter 9. And he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. The focus of the believer, believe it or not, is never to be on ourselves. Never. It's never to be on what we think will make us happy or content, or purposeful. It's always to be on the furtherance of the gospel. It's always to be on bringing one more person into the kingdom of God. As pointed out by one Bible scholar, Paul is referencing the words no doubt recounted to him by one of Jesus' disciples when Jesus himself said, the harvesters are paid good wages and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike? No doubt that what Paul has in mind when the Holy Spirit guided him to write, these, uh, write, write the words in our passage this morning was that the part that each believer plays in someone else coming to faith in Jesus is just as important as the one who leads that person to Jesus. Did you know that? Paul gives his life in every way so that he can experience the joy that comes from having any part in one more person giving their life to Jesus. That person who plants the seed of truth of salvation found in Jesus and revealed to us in God's word has just as much as reward uh, of a reward as the one who's, who God uses to harvest that soul for his kingdom. A life lived in every way for the planting of seeds of the gospel in as many lives as possible has the greatest reward and the greatest joy. While this is directly connected to the context of finances, the same is true for the broadcasting of gospel seeds of truth. Paul says elsewhere, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. The mindset of resolving to live your life for the gospel, since that is what we're all called to anyway, as disciples of Jesus, seamlessly flows into Paul's goal in this race. Remember Jesus' words at the end of Matthew. They're, directly, they're directed at all of us who have believed in Jesus and are being discipled by his words. They're directed at each and every one of us. Therefore, go! And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's directed to each and every one of us. In connection with what Paul has already been talking about up to this point, the first thing we all must do as believers is to get rid of, self-centered, of a self-centered mentality. 
The Bible is abundantly clear about the sin of thinking of ourselves in that way once we've given our lives to Jesus. We are not our own anymore. We are not our own selves anymore. We have been bought with an impossibly high price. And Paul ends those words with, so you must honor God with your body. You must glorify God with your life. Since our lives are not our own and our purpose now is to glorify God in every way with our lives out of our love for Him, we are to live out the rest of our lives focused on planting gospel seeds of truth in the lives of everyone we meet. That's the first thing we must realize and be dedicated to. Right off the bat, what that does right off the bat is that avoids a lot of temptation. That avoids a lot of falling to what the world either is perfectly fine with or even holds dear. And that avoids ruining our reputation and causing harm to Jesus' cause of the gospel. What it does is that it gives us a goal in glorifying God with our lives. That goal is bringing as many people with us into the next life through the way we live our earthly lives. Paul flat out points out that goal and that determination in verse 24. Read along with me. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Paul does not beat around the bush here. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He's very upfront with it. Run the race of faith in, in a way that you would win it. This is what we all must resolve to be determined to do. We all must be resolved to win. There can be no allowances for side trips off the race path or running after the ice cream truck. There, we all must be determined that there can only be one goal and nothing will deter us from that goal. Nothing will derail us, nothing will distract us, and nothing will cause us to fall behind. Just as athletes who want to go to the Olympics have one goal, right? To go to the Olympics and compete in the Olympics and win in the Olympics, and nothing will stop them from that, and they're trained their hearts out to achieve that goal. Look at this verse. We must have the exact same resolve. Why do you think Paul uses the same exact idea to illustrate his whole point? That of an athlete who has resolved that nothing will stop them from winning. Absolutely nothing. It is the most understandable illustration that could have been used and still can be used. No athlete goes through the trouble of entering a race already thinking, eh, I'll see how much I actually want to invest in this thing once the whistle blows. No athlete enters a race with that mentality. Even those of us who enter 5Ks or half marathons or even full marathons go into thinking, I'm going to do the best that I can and I'm going to finish strong. Even even those of us who enter those races have that mentality. As believers, we must have the same determination if we ever are going to be effective as individuals planting the seeds of the gospel and as a church, as a force for the gospel in our community. We can't be half-hearted. 
We have to jump in with both feet and say, I am resolved. I am determined to win this race and live my life wholeheartedly for God's glory and the furtherance of the gospel. Jump in with both feet. So how do we attain that goal? How do we run the race of faith to attain this goal, the destination, the aim, the target, the finish line? And that's the, device, the decisive key. In verse 25 we read, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. The games that Paul is referring to here, according to one Bible scholar, were the biennial games that took place near Corinth. The Corinthians would have been very well aware of these biennial games. They took place right next to Corinth. These games were similar to the Olympic Games today. One of these games was a race in which the winner received a pine wreath to wear on their head. This wreath was not only a physical reward, but served as the physical record. You could wave it around. It served as the physical record of bragging rights that, were, that you were the best. That's the wreath that Paul is referring to here. If, somebody, if, you, if you walked into a, a, a hangout place with your buddies and, and, and you said, I, hey, I just won that race in the biennial games, and I say, prove it, you could wave this wreath in their face. It was the physical proof that you won this race. But how long would that wreath last until it disintegrated? Imagine trying to get your buddies to believe that you won that race 50 years ago without the wreath to prove it. Oppositely, Paul says, the joy and reward that those who plant the seeds of truth and harvest souls have joy and reward that the eternal God always has record of. No one will forget that. In fact, that joy and reward will only grow as more and more seeds are planted. And when we enter eternity, we'll have the inheritance and reward that goes along with that faithful dedication of our life's focus. So, what is the key to winning? You have the point here is the decisive key. What is the decisive key to winning? What is the overall theme for winning this race? said to us point blank in verse 25. What do we see there? Everyone who competes in the games exercises what? Self-control. That's the key. That's the key to winning this race. Practicing self-control in every area of your life will plant seeds in others' minds without you even saying a word. They'll just see it. Why? Because biblical self-control speaks volumes about faith in the biblical God without a word even being spoken yet. Think about it. A life spent practicing financial self-control will speak volumes as to where your treasure really is. Where is your treasure? And who your trust really is in? 
If you're sticking to a wise budget, only spending what you need, practicing self-control with the things you want, giving your tithe and giving generously to those in need, you're showing people, I know whose money this really is. It's not mine. I know whose money this really is. It was always God's. I might think it's mine, but it's never really been mine. It was always God's. I'm merely being as wise a steward with it as I can be and using it the way that he would want me to. Because of that, I'm not worried about my financial needs because I know my God will take care of every single one of them. I'm not focused on building up wealth for myself. I'm focused on building up souls for the kingdom. That's not what my focus is on. It's God's anyways. I use it as wisely as I can, but I'm not going to worry about it. A life spent practicing moral self-control will speak volumes as to who you really love, as to who you're really trying to live for. If you're not falling to the sexual temptation of things you know are against God's word and God's purpose for marriage and sex, that's huge in a world where there are no standards. If you're practicing self-control and not passing along the next juicy piece of gossip or watching things that are detrimental to your faith growth or consuming things you know are bad for your body, that will show people that you're dedicated to God's goal. If in self-control you take steps on social media or the internet to decrease the amount of time spent on it and opening yourself up to jealousy, the temptation to portray yourself in a way that's not true, or opening yourself up to questionable things, you're showing the world that it's better to decrease things and set up protections for the sake of your faith, life, and goal. That's what you're showing a watching world. If you realize you're spending too much time in the virtual world instead of the real world, practicing self-control will show the real world that your priority is on God's goal for your life. In Paul's context, he was urging those who saw nothing wrong with publicly eating meat dedicated to pagan worship to practice self-control in that area, thereby giving public testimony of their faith to their brothers and sisters and giving public testimony to the pagan world. If any of these people who were eating that meat stopped showing up to these celebrations, their friends would start wondering why, and then they would have a perfect opportunity to share the good news of faith in Jesus and why that was so important to them to make that decision. There are many and other areas of our personal lives that self-control must be brought in to rein everything in. Practicing self-control in every area of our lives points those lives towards one common goal, that of glorifying God and through that, fulfilling the Great Commission and bringing more souls into God's kingdom. So we talked about the destination, where we should be headed, and we talked about the general key to heading in that direction. And third, we're going to talk about the details. That's usually what comes last. Here's all the nitty-gritty details for this. Therefore, verses 26 through 27, Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. This is even further imagery to illustrate the extent 
of what Paul is getting at here. According to one Bible scholar, Paul is addressing those who might have thought that his indication that he tried to be all things to all men for the sake of the gospel was aimless and therefore ineffective. Oh, he's chasing this group over here. He's chasing this group over here. He's aimless and he's ineffective. Quite the opposite. Paul is saying in verse 26 that everything he did, he calculated to be of the most worth for the kingdom. Wow. Talk about self-control. Every word Paul said and every action Paul took, he calculated to be of the greatest worth for the furthering of the kingdom of God. And I think we all have to ask ourselves a question and be honest with ourselves before God. Can we say the same thing about ourselves? Can we say the same thing about ourselves? That's what Paul is ultimately driving at here. There are multiple verses in Scripture, a lot of which are found in the Old Testament book of Proverbs, if you're so interested, that point out the importance and power of our words. Are we calculating that every word we say is of the most good for the furthering of God's kingdom? Are we calculating that everything we do is of the most good for the furthering of God's kingdom? That's where the hardest self-control really comes in, doesn't it? That's where the hardest self-control really comes in. That all of a sudden puts everything in and about our lives in a completely new light. That puts a new focus on how we're spending our time. That puts a new focus on how we're raising our families. That puts a new focus on how we're relating to and loving our spouses. That puts a new focus on how we're doing our work. That puts a new focus on how we view coming together as a church for the building up of each other. That puts a new focus on how we view the world around us and how we interact with it. Likewise, that changes the way we see our enemy. It changes the way that we see our enemy. Again, one Bible scholar pointed out that Paul's illustration of boxing in verse 26 is offensive. It's not defensive, it's offensive. Every blow Paul struck towards the enemy in his ministry was not aimless, but calculated. He made sure that each offensive move that Paul struck out with was going to make the enemy hurt. He made sure of it. Every strike was going to make the enemy hurt. God uses self-control to teach us what battles to pick. Believe it or not, you don't have to make sure that every person that is rude to you or takes advantage of you or belittles you is put back in their place. You don't have to do that. Most often, those are fights that are aimless. And they don't actually make any impact on fighting against the enemy. And in most cases, they actually help the enemy. No. Self-controlled, calculated attacks are taking back territory from the enemy. Hitting him where he hurts. Calculated attacks are ministering to those who are hard to get along with. Who everyone else has given up on to share the love of Christ with them. 
calculated attacks are finding out how you can get involved with ministries who are on the front lines around the world and right here in our country who are freeing people from sex trafficking. Calculated attacks are donating resources and time to local crisis pregnancy centers and adoption services. Calculated attacks are coming alongside of someone who struggles with any kind of addiction, whether it be alcohol, prescription drugs, illegal drugs, gambling, porn, or destructive behavior. Calculated attacks are being a real friend with the freedom, love, and truth of God's word towards those who are deep in depression or struggle daily with anxiety and fear or are facing a terminal illness or debilitating injury. These are calculated attacks to take back territory from the enemy and give it to God's kingdom. That is offensive self-control. Not the type of offensive that we know of today. Oh, that offends me. This is offensive, like the offensive line for an NFL football team. This is offensive self-control. Self-control that manifests itself on the front lines and beats back the darkness, and again, focusing on the target of glorifying God with our lives and bringing as many as we can with us into eternity. In verse 27, Paul is not advocating self-deprecation, but rather self-deprivation. Verse 27, But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He's not advocating self-deprecation. He's advocating self-deprivation. In other words, Paul is not advocating just being down on yourself and beating yourself up, but rather emptying yourself of yourself and being filled more and more with Christ. It's the daily self-control of literally controlling yourself and your selfishness and your pride to be decreasing more and more as the likeness of Christ increases more and more. This goes hand in hand with everything we've been talking about for a long time. Where does, self, where does this self-control ultimately come from? Contrary to your name, it's not self. It's not yourself. That's not ultimately where it comes from, contrary to its name. It can only come from God. Another better name for it, describing it, would be spirit control. Not self-control, Holy Spirit control. After all, self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit that is grown in you. In fact, it's the very last one listed. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. It's the Holy Spirit that's producing it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and then self-control. There it is, written right there. So then, how does your self-control grow? By allowing the Holy Spirit to stretch and grow it through more and different experiences. If you don't want anything to change, then nothing will. If you don't want anything to change, then nothing will. Self-control, then, is wanting the change and surrendering it to the Holy Spirit's transformation. Lastly, Paul says that, in part, he does this so that he won't be disqualified. 
That's what we read in verse 27. He's not talking about salvation here. Rather, he's talking about staying in the race. To become disqualified would be little compromises that Paul allows here and there to start to derail him from the race, start to veer him off the track. And over time, building on top of each other, what they will end up doing is destroying his reputation, causing much harm to the cause of the gospel. And ultimately, this is a reality we all need to keep in mind, ultimately may result in early removal from the race of life altogether. In 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul notes that some in the church had made too many compromises. They had caused too many damage, too much damage to the cause of Christ. And so God removed them from the earth. He says, that is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. Now, what I want to be very clear about here is this is obviously not evidence to say that anyone who is weak, sick, or has died is because they were behaving too wickedly. That is not what that is saying. But it does raise the warning for us to not disqualify ourselves from the race by letting little compromises sneak in and start us down the wrong path. You can take a deep breath now. We've been through a lot of application today, haven't we? I pray that some, if not all of it, connected in some way to all of us that as we all look at our lives, we will all see what areas we still need to practice self-control in so that we achieve the goal of running and winning the race of faith. When we all reach the end of our lives, may we all have the confidence of what one Bible scholar pointed out that Paul said at the end of his life, and he knew execution for his faith was imminent. It was right around the corner. He knew it was coming. And this is Paul's words at the end of his life. And may these be our words as we live our lives. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have remained faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that each of us will be able to say those same exact words in full confidence in all honesty before you. I pray that if we're not now, if there's areas in our lives that we're not practicing self-control and not reining it in uh, to, to, to adhere it to the truth of, of God's word, I pray that we would do so today. I pray that we would take a stand today. I pray that we would be resolved today, determined to not let anything sidetrack us, but to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Keep our eyes fixed on the finish line, on the, on the goal. Now we would get rid of things that are waylaying us and, and pushing us off the path. Letting go of every sin that seeks to trip us up. That we may run wholeheartedly and without burden this race that you have for us. Lord, I pray that we would run in the strength of the Holy Spirit, who is the one who is ultimately growing this self-control in us that through the way that we live our lives, we will be planting the seeds of gospel truth in the lives of everyone we meet without even saying a word yet. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me.